Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. All right, well, it is week two of Sanctify Your Spotify. If you weren't here with us last week, um, we are in a new sermon series. It's a little bit different than what you would normally expect here at Sweetwater Christian Church. Um, and basically what we're doing, if you were to funnel it down to its most kind of simplistic explanation, is we are looking at some of the poetry of contemporary music and real basically just using it as a launch pad for theological reflection. We're kind of trying to zero in on the intersection between faith and music that so often is perhaps not easy to find, but very rewarding once we do find it. Uh, so last week we looked at a pretty popular pop song by One Republic called Connection. Today, even more fun, one of my favorite things about the series is introducing you to new music and then seeing people um, enjoy music that might be out of their comfort zone anyways. And so today we've got an English, a British indie rock band, alt-rock band, which I know is all of your favorite types of music. They are called Foles. I'm guessing no one here has probably ever heard of Foles. Anybody? Foles. They're a four-piece rock band uh, out of England. Uh, they've been around for quite a while um, and have actually won some awards over in England for our best live act. So that's kind of their reputation. It's a fun party to go to, to watch them play. Um, the song we're going to listen to and reflect on today is called Mountain at My Gates. Uh, there are some handouts with the lyrics around you. Um, the, the poetry of this song is a little bit more complex and involved, so I wanted to give that to you if you wanted to follow along that way. Also, the music video it can be a little uh, psychedelic, and so if you start to get dizzy, you can just focus on the, the, the paper in front of you and, and follow along the lyrics there. Um, Mountain at My Gates is a song that was released in 2015. Um, it got pretty popular here in the U.S. It peaked number one, actually, on the alternative rock uh, chart for the um, Billboard um, music charts uh, ended up at number 17 for the mainstream rock chart. If you are a video game fan, you might recognize the song. It became the soundtrack for a very popular soccer game, FIFA 16. And so that's kind of how a lot of uh, it kind of found its way into our, our pop culture. But um, I can remember the very first time hearing this song, not only enjoying it, but thinking very specifically of the passage that I want to explore with you this morning and really resonating with the theme of the song that so many have. And so here we have it. Here's the music video. You got the lyrics for Mountain at My Gates by Foles. Enjoy. It's always a little anticlimactic to come up and preach right after, right? Seconds after the rock song. Ends. I don't know if you can relate to the song, though, if you've ever felt like life was climbing a mountain and, and you had no idea where the next foothold was, and you were just curious where you should be climbing, where you should be going. The, the song, the poetry is pretty beautiful here to me. It says, I see a mountain at my gate. It's a song about a, like a looming obstacle or a problem or a difficulty. I don't know if you've ever encountered this in your life. I feel like most of us probably have at one point or another. There was this relationship that wasn't working the way it was supposed to be. There were these financial difficulties that we found ourselves kind of trapped in. There was a situation at work or at home or in our neighborhood. There was this crisis of health in our own lives or in the lives of someone we loved. And it, it just seemed like this insurmountable obstacle. And we would wake up and Right outside the gate, every day is this mountain, and, and the repetition of the song kind of drives this home. 
I see a mountain at my gate. I see it more and more each day. What I give, it it takes away. He continues, I see a mountain in my way. It's, it's looming larger by the day. It's the darkness I see in my fate. It's something that we experience in life, this, this obstacle or this problem or this difficulty, and it, it kind of casts a shadow over all of your thoughts, over all of your time. It's a song that has in here a repeated call for help. He asks for some time. He says, give me some time. Show me the foothold from which I must climb. When I'm low, show me the signpost for where I should go. You see, a mountain has kind of always been a go-to metaphor for human beings to describe a problem or difficulty in our lives, to, to describe the sometimes tumultuous journey through life where we're not always sure which way to go or what decision to make. And if you've ever climbed a rock or tracked up a, or hiked up a, hiked up a mountain, you, you can probably relate to this feeling. If, if you've been on a rock wall and, and as the muscles, the strength is draining away in your muscles, you're frantically reaching for that next place to hold, the next place to put your foot. Sometimes life can feel like that. And the song has some movement to it. By the end of the song, the, the last chorus, something's happened. So this mountain that was at the gate, which is looming larger every day, it's getting bigger and bigger. It's seemingly insurmountable and immovable. In the last chorus, he says, I come to climb and I see this mountain now so far behind. It's farther away. It's, its shadow gets smaller day after day. The song is a lyrical cry for guidance and instruction in a world that's so often confusing. It's a, a musical description of the human experience where you and I encounter obstacles and difficulties that often threaten to derail us, that threaten to rob us of our hopes and our dreams, that threaten to derail our, our very best plans. This feeling is something I think that we can all relate to. It's why metaphors of climbing and journeying and mountains are so moving and always have been. In fact, the scriptures use this idea, this metaphor, this imagery of mountains being this problem that we're facing, being this issue that we're trying to get over with, the situation we deal with in humans. And this song in particular, from the very beginning, I remember the first time I heard it, it reminded me of a, a theme that you find in the Gospels, and in particular, one text we'll look at this morning, where Jesus talks about faith. He talks about the kind of faith that disciples are called to have that is a mountain-moving kind of faith. And we'll see there's this, there's this very famous phrase Jesus uses, and as famous as it is, it's also somewhat confusing and puzzling, where Jesus says, if you have this right type of faith, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would. And he says, nothing would be impossible for you. And this, this promise from Jesus seems so far away from our own experience, especially if we find ourselves in one of these situations where this mountain looms large over our lives. And so I want to explore this morning Jesus' wisdom as it, it comes to this text and this topic and this theme. And, and so let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew 17. Matthew 17 is where we find Jesus engaging in similar poetry here. The artist asks for help in encountering and getting beyond this mountain. Even the music video kind of gets this across, how disorienting it is. as It's kind of spinning in circles and 
And if you, you see at the end, the, the mountain that was behind the band as they're playing, at the very end, it kind of is demolished and is crushed and falls down. In Matthew 17, we'll see a situation like the one the song describes, and we'll see Jesus talk about a faith that is able to conquer and be victorious over issues like ones that feel like mountains. Chapter 17, we're going to pick up in verse 14. Now, the context here as we start to read um, in chapter 17 is Jesus has just been on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is seen in the Gospels where Jesus takes James and John and Peter, his inner three disciples, up onto the mountain. And on this mountain, he is transfigured, which is to say his, his glory is revealed. And they kind of see him in all of his brazzling, or in all of his, his brilliant radiance, his glory for, for who he is. Moses and Elijah show up, which is an interesting day. It's an interesting party. And they have this, this mountaintop experience. And now, and where we'll pick it up, they've now come back to the bottom of the mountain and they'll encounter um, a situation that has happened. We pick it up in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. The word here for could not you could translate it unable or without power. This is kind of the, the theme of this passage. It's repeated three times, even though in English we don't translate it the same every time. This is a, a story about power. It's a story about ability, the ability of the disciples to help this person, the ability of Jesus to help this young man. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Not the most encouraging words from Jesus, you never want to be lumped into a group or a category that he calls faithless and twisted, unbelieving, perverse. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, perhaps hoping he'd calm down a bit. They want this one-on-one conversation. And he asks, they ask him, why could we not cast it out? There's your second repetition of this word. Why were we unable to do this? Why were we not able to solve this problem, and he, he says to them, because of your little faith. The word little faith in Greek is actually one word. It's kind of a made-up word. Jesus uses it somewhat regularly in the Gospels. If you remember, there are other passages where Jesus says, you of little faith. He almost uses it as like a, a, a nickname, if you would. Little faith, with like a capital L and capital F, like a bad Lord of the Rings character. Little faith, it's, it's not the type of nickname you want necessarily, but sometimes perhaps a type of nickname we deserve. He says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Or you'll, be, you'll have nothing you'll be unable to do. That's your third time you see this word here. The, the story is, while Jesus is on this mountain and Peter, James, and John are experiencing this transfiguration. This father comes to the disciples hoping for healing. And this is a big part of Jesus' ministry is is healing those who are sick. And and this little boy has epilepsy. He he has these recurring seizures, and they are destructive in the worst way. This child is getting, he's falling into fire, into water. And the disciples 
seeing this need, try to fix it. They try to heal this child. They try to cast out this sickness, this spirit, but they're unable to do so. Now, to understand kind of the disappointment of everybody in this scene, Jesus seems disappointed. I'm sure the father is disappointed. His son has not been healed. The disciples are disappointed. They're not able to do this. To understand really the disappointment, you have to understand that at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples have already been given by Jesus the authority to do these type of things. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, I give you my authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to perform these miracles. Then he sends them out two by two. And so they've already had experience on their own, not with Jesus physically present, healing people, seeing miraculous signs of the kingdom come. But for whatever reason, this opportunity presents itself and they go for it and they're unable to reach it. And they're probably as hurt and confused and disappointed as anyone else. You see, Jesus had called them to join him on his mission, had called them to to bear witness to the kingdom that he was inaugurating, but they're unable to do so. And he reacts a little harshly. He diagnoses the problem. They say, why were we not able to meet this need? And he says, it's because you're a little faith. It's because in this moment, in this situation, you had little faith. The solution he gives is, he says, you need mustard seed faith. And if you had this mustard seed faith, you could... This mountain I just transfigured on, you could just throw it wherever you'd like. Nothing, he says, would be impossible for you if you had this mustard seed faith. Now, there is a paradox to Jesus' answer here. You see, mustard seeds are a, a, a metaphor Jesus has already used. He's used it in Matthew to describe the kingdom of God. It's a tiny little seed. It's very small. It seems to be part of its usage, and yet it grows and thrives and develops into this living, breathing, growing thing. Jesus will say the kingdom of God is like that. It's possible for you to not even notice it, for you to miss it, and yet it grows and expands and is on the move. But if, this, if the diagnosis is you have little faith, it would seem that the solution here is not much of a solution. If the problem is little faith, then to have faith of a mustard seed, we would go, well, then what? That's also little, right? I mean, it's also a small thing. What's the difference between the little faith and the mustard seed? It seems obvious one is bad and it doesn't produce results. It's impotent and has no power. The other one has power and does produce results. When we question what is this mustard seed faith, what makes it different than little faith? The first thing we can notice is we can rule out one popular interpretation and one popular approach to the Gospels and to the theme of faith altogether, which is Jesus seems to very clearly be saying the problem is not that you need more faith or that you need greater faith or that you need faith as big as a mountain to move a mountain. That's kind of the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. The good news is he's not saying they need more faith, they need impressive faith, they need great faith. No, just a little faith will work. Just a mustard seed's worth of faith will be fine. The issue is not whether we're full of faith, but perhaps whether we have any faith. It's an encouraging answer because it's easy for you and I to get stuck in this vicious cycle of self analysis where we wonder whether God is able to work in our lives or through us in the lives of others if we have enough faith or not. And so we pray, but we don't receive an answer, not the answer that we're looking for, and, and we're thrown back on ourselves and wonder, well, maybe if I did something differently, maybe if I was more certain, maybe if I mustered up more faith, maybe if my faith was more impressive, maybe if I was doing more and being more, God would respond 
in a likewise manner. But for Jesus' faith, I mean, it's kind of like looking at the moon. The, the size of the window is not quite as important as the fact that the window is just facing the right direction. The simplest of prayers, the simplest acts of faith can be powerful and can be moving because it's not the quality of our faith that counts, it's the object of our faith. What's important is not so much that our faith is great, but that the one in whom our faith is placed, he himself is great. The smallest acts of faith, the feeblest of prayers, they produce great things. I think Jesus wants his disciples to cease groveling in shame or an inadequacy because of their almost always weak faith. And he wants them here to believe that even their elementary efforts, even their JV level faith and prayers, they throb with power. Faith, even though it might be small, is not feeble. It's alive like a mustard seed and it has the ability to grow and be used. What is the difference then between little faith and mustard seed faith? If it's not a matter of quantity and it's not a matter of you and I just being able to produce more of it, what what is it? Matthew doesn't really seem to give us a good answer here. But there's a a good rule of interpreting the Gospels. There's a, a good strategy when you're reading the Bible and you come to a Gospel passage. And it goes like this. If at first you don't succeed, try another Gospel. We've gotten four of them. And many of the stories are told more than once. And so sometimes it's helpful if we get at a dead end in one gospel to go see if you find it in another gospel. And it has something else that might help you. It has something else that might guide you to a deeper understanding. And this is the case, I think, with this story. In Mark chapter 9, Mark gives us his version of the story. And, and when he gives the solution, he doesn't say, you need faith like a mustard seed. He says, this kind of spirit, this kind of sickness It can only be cast out, he says, by prayer. So Matthew hears Jesus say the solution is mustard seed, faith. Mark hears Jesus say the solution is prayer. Then we can ask, is there a difference? Perhaps not much, if any at all. Perhaps we could say that, that mustard seed faith is just faith that is praying. We could say that prayer is is faith that is breathing. Mustard seed faith is simply a faith that is on its knees seeking intimacy with the Father, seeking direction and guidance from the Father. It's a faith that breathes. It's a faith that moves. It's a faith that says its prayers faithfully. Faith and prayer, they're both united in this sense of openness to God, in the sense of trust and communication the type of prayer Jesus, or the type of faith Jesus is instructing his disciples to take hold of is a faith that is grounded in prayer. It's grounded in a deep, sensed, rooted connection with the Father. It's interesting in Mark's gospel because while Jesus says this type can only be cast out with prayer, he doesn't, we're not told in the story in Mark, he doesn't pray to cast out the sickness. So Jesus just kind of like snapped his fingers right and made the sickness go away. And the disciples were like, why couldn't we do that? And he goes, because you've got to pray. But I don't think it's necessarily a matter of a one-time prayer. Jesus, we're told in the Gospels, lives a life of prayer. He's constantly communing with the Father, seeking intimacy with him. And so when he encounters situations like this, he's already tapped into the Father's resources in a way where he's able to meet the needs in front of him. 
where God's able to work miraculously and move these mountains. So how does the church, how do you and I, how do we find the ability to help the world? How do we find the ability to do what seems impossible? Well, the very first thing we could say is it's by believing God enough to say our prayers. It's by trusting God enough that when we encounter that mountain, even when it looms larger, even when its shadow casts further, even when it seems more impossible, that we don't stop the important work of calling out to God the Father. We learn, I think, in this passage and elsewhere that for Christians, for you and I, prayerlessness is powerlessness. The power that Christ shares with his disciples and the power that you and I, through the Spirit, are meant to tap into is a power that is intimately connected with prayer, with the communion with the Father. To be without that is to lose the ability to practice and engage in that power. Notice the encouragement that Jesus gives here to the disciples. So at first there's a rebuke, and perhaps their heads droop as they hear Jesus describe them as unbelieving and, and twisted as, as he identifies their little faith. But I'm imagining, in the same manner their heads droop, their jaws drop with the following statements he makes. I mean, listen to what Jesus says to the disciples. If you, if you had this type of faith, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. He says, nothing would be impossible for you. And I want you to hear those words this morning. And I want to try to get you to hear them with a childlike sense of hearing. Because what happens is, by the time you and I come here and are sitting in these seats and worshiping together, life has beat in us down. And we've prayed for things and not seen them happen the way we wanted them. And we've encountered problems and they have crushed us instead of us crushing them. And we have realized that when it comes to the real world, we need to be realists and we need to sometimes bring some cynicism to it. And, and if you look at just the history of interpretation of this passage, it's basically 2,000 years of us trying to explain away what Jesus is saying here and to qualify it and to tell us all the reasons why he doesn't actually mean nothing will be impossible for you. If you have faith like this, the mountains themselves would move. And there's... There's perhaps truth to that and some importance to that, but my fear is that we're too quick to this. That this is our first move when perhaps it should be our second or third or fourth move. What would change in your life? How would your life change? How would you live or think or act differently if you really believed this? That God could give you the type of faith that would move mountains, that, that nothing was impossible for you. How would we be different as a church? What would our dreams, how would they be different? How would, how would your experience of the problems in your lives be different? How would, how would you approach the opportunity to meet the needs of others around you? How would that be different? It's easy for us to, to become cynics and to qualify and nuance and explain this away. Another good rule, just some advice from Pastor Mike about reading the scriptures is I've just come over and over and over again to think more and more and more. We probably do better when we take Jesus more seriously. When we don't assume Jesus doesn't mean what he says, that he has to mean what makes sense to us, 
instead of go, well, what if we just block out all of our questions and first just ask the question, what if he really means that? What difference would that make in our lives? What difference would that make in our prayers? What difference would that make to the way we approach the problems and the difficulties in our lives and the needs around us? Life has a way of producing these mountains. And perhaps some of us are facing one right now. Perhaps there's one we can think of not too far in the distance. Perhaps things are great right now, but there's probably a mountain coming in your direction. What would our experience of that problem be like? How would that be different if we took these words to heart? If we were encouraged by them? If, if like Jesus seems to intend, they, they produced in us a desire to lean in, to press in further, a desire to go to God more consistently and more hopefully and with more expectation in our prayers. A mustard seed-like faith is a, a faith that is prayerful. It's a faith that's rooted in an intimacy with the Father and a desire to know Him and experience Him more. The context of the story is important. Moving mountains, which Jesus promises his disciples here, is not the same as performing magic tricks. It's not the same as getting whatever we want. What are the disciples trying to do here? They're trying to participate in the ministry of Jesus. They're trying to meet the needs of people around them. To be able to move mountains with the right type of faith is to have the ability to do the work that Christ has called us to do in the world, to to see his kingdom come, to see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so often I think what happens is a mustard seed-like faith brings us to the Father with hope and expectation, with a childlike trust. But it works on us in important ways. A mustard seed-like faith is not only one that's rooted in prayer, but it's also a faith that transforms us that sanctifies us, that changes us. And as we're changed, perhaps our view of the mountain changes. As we're changed, perhaps our experience of the mountain changes. As we're changed, perhaps our desires for the mountain change. You see, perhaps it's the case that time in prayer, intimacy with the Father, hearing and receiving his truth, will change what it is that we thought that we wanted or needed. Or change what it is we thought we had to bring to the table or accomplish. Jesus uses this type of language more than just here in Matthew. So there's a a passage in Luke. It's in chapter 17 where he says something similar. He says, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Just as weird and impossible The context, though, of that statement is not a healing that wasn't able to occur. It's instructions on forgiveness. Jesus tells his disciples, here's how you should be forgiving people. If your brother sins against you and they come to you with repentance, you offer forgiveness seven times seven. It's just unending forgiveness, right? It's unlimited forgiveness. And without any change in context, he then tells them, and if you have faith like a mustard seed, you could say this tree be uprooted and go and plant itself in the ocean. And I don't know if you've ever tried to forgive somebody, but sometimes it does seem like it'd be easier to move a mountain (laughs) or to take this tree and go plant it in the Atlantic. 
You see, mustard seed type faith is a faith that prays and it's a faith that sanctifies. It's a faith that produces in us a Christ-likeness. It's a faith that works out in our hearts and in our characters the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and patience and kindness, discipline and self-control. Jesus calls his disciples to have a mountain-moving type of faith, a faith that says its prayers, a faith that sanctifies. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, in the famous love passage, I think it's read at, at weddings primarily, he says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Again, we get to the sense here, it's not magic tricks that Jesus is offering us. This tells me one of two things. Either the language of moving mountains with your faith is somewhat stock language in the first century. It's pretty familiar. Or that Jesus' teachings on faith using this type of language is really sticky with the early church, that Paul was familiar with it. He's writing 1 Corinthians probably before he has a gospel in front of him. So if he's referencing Jesus' teachings here, that means it's traveling around the church that this stuck out in their minds. It's not too hard to imagine it might. But notice Paul says, I could have that faith, I could be moving the mountains, but I haven't been transformed. If these mountains aren't being moved in love, there's no point to them. It's, it's nothing. It's meaningless. The type of mountain-moving, mustard-seeth-praying faith Jesus calls us to is a type that also sanctifies, that transforms. And the choice before us is not one of whether we'll be transformed or not be transformed. We're going to be shaped no matter what direction we take. It's easy for us to get tired and discouraged. It's easy for the weight of life to press in on us and for us to become burnt out by the the obstacles and the problems in our lives or in the lives of others. It's easy to become disappointed in God when the mountain we've been facing down doesn't seem to collapse so easily like it does in the music video. It's easy to think God's failed us or perhaps just as bad to stop expecting as much of God. To start letting God off the hook. To change the vocabulary of our prayers so perhaps it's less embarrassing for God where we sound more responsible, more worldly. This is not the faith Jesus calls us to. He calls us to a childlike faith. You see, if we get into that habit of expecting less from God, of hoping less from God, of being intimidated more easily by the mountains around us, this has an effect on our hearts. This will take shape and root in our lives. This will change the way we pray and read and relate to other people. There's perhaps something important in the practice of enduring prayer, of continuing to come to God with hope and expectation. Despite whatever experiences we've had, despite the doubts or whispers in our minds, to come again and again and again, expecting God's will to be done, expecting his kingdom to come. We should continue to ask and expect and hope for big things. We should understand that our prayers for healing, 
that our prayers for redemption, for reconciliation, these things are truly what God desires. They truly are manifestations of God's kingdom in our world. And these prayers have an ultimate answer of yes. So it's important, I think, to understand this. Like, I can relate. I've had seizures. I can relate to this, this little kid having these seizures. It's a very disorienting experience. I've not had a seizure by a campfire or by a pool, but I have had one driving a car. And just as self-destructive. It's not more so. I certainly have had problems in my life that seemed like they would never go away. That seemed like I could not do anything quite about them. They were immovable. They were insurmountable. And at my worst, I would wake up and the shadow would just loom over me all day. And at times I could ask for a foothold to present itself or for a path to climb to show itself to me, but at times I, I didn't even have enough courage to muster that. I think we can, we can relate, but it's important to understand even prayers that we perhaps don't see the answer to, they, in God's kingdom, they all have an ultimate answer of yes. So this little boy with epilepsy, even if he's not healed here in this moment, what we believe as Christians is that one day a world is coming where there will be no epilepsy, where this boy will be resurrected and healed of this sickness. This is important to catch because even once this boy is healed, we can presume at some point in his life he got sick again, and as he aged, his body deteriorated, and he's no longer with us. If he was still around, I'd expect him to have an Instagram page and a very popular ministry. I'm the seizure kid from Matthew. We'd all be on the email newsletter, right? I mean, we'd be getting, we'd be getting the, the updates. But he's, he's not with us. Even those who find healing, even miraculous healing, it's a temporary one. It's, it's just a sign to the greater healing that is to come for all of us. And so, I mean, bottom line, worst case scenario in terms of the answer we get from the gates of heaven to our prayers is perhaps that healing is not, for whatever reason, lots of variables, but, but maybe not just because you have little faith. Maybe not just because your faith isn't as impressive as it should be, isn't as big as it needs to be. But perhaps it's not going to be experienced. But very, very importantly, that shouldn't change how you approach the issue or the next one. It shouldn't change your trust in God's ultimate future. Because though that cancer might not be healed, one day all cancer will be healed. And though that death might not be avoided, one day all death will be overdone and Jesus will resurrect his people for life on a new heaven and a new earth that John tells us he sees and he sees no sickness and he sees no pain and he sees no tears and there's an importance I think to us continuing to ask God for these things expecting God to do these things even when we encounter time delays because it's preparing us and growing in us the right shape of faith the right 
type of hope that will prove true and useful to us in the resurrection and life to come. We're, we're tapping into eternal life when we come to God with these expectations. Because as we're told in Hebrews, these heroes of the faith, God's not ashamed to call them his own. Why? Because he has a city planned for them. He has a kingdom prepared for them. And their most outrageous longings and hopes he'll be glorified in. Because they didn't give up on him. They didn't find them silly or not realistic. And so I don't know what might be in your life today that you might resonate with when you hear the song, when you think about the lyrics, when you read this text, that that you think this is a mountain in my life. I don't know who you might know or encounter in your life that, that has something like this. I don't know what level of discouragement you're at at the moment. Maybe you're kind of still in the fight and you've still got hope, or maybe it's, it's months in and, and now maybe if you're being honest about it, you, you, and it's not even still in your prayers anymore. You just kind of come to expect that this is how it's going to be and you've, you've moved on to the next thing. And Jesus calls to us, invites us, to press in, to lean in, to grab hold of a mustard seed type faith, a faith that continues to say its prayers, a faith that continues to shape and transform us, a faith that continues to prepare us to thrive fully in God's kingdom to come. If you have faith like this, Jesus says, even mountains can be moved. Nothing will be impossible for you. And as his people believe him, and as we act and pray and dream like we believe him, we bear witness to the world around us about God's kingdom, about Christ's victory, and about the future that is on its way. So keep praying. Keep hoping. Keep expecting. 